We are in a series walking through. So I started the series to walk through First and Second Samuel through the end of the year. I uh, called it Monarchy of Misfits. We look at Saul, we look at David. Heck, I thought maybe we'd even, you know, continue on into some other kings, perhaps. Well, we're moving very slowly first through First Samuel, and uh, the stories are great. I'm enjoying telling them. So I think the new plan is we're going to stay in First Samuel through the end of this year. We'll take a little time for Christmas, and then we're going to go through Second Samuel, the first part of next year, and then we'll do some Gospels and, and uh, stuff on Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection as we lead into Easter. So that's the plan if you're a kind of person who cares about plans. All right, let me ask you a question. What do you prefer? Friends who are consistent meaning you get together with them and you kind of know what you're going to get, for better or for worse, or friends who are volatile. Like you get together with them, you're like, don't know which version of Brian I'm going to get today. Survivor started a new season two weeks ago. Any Survivor fans in the room? Okay, we got a, got a couple, got a couple and a few others not willing to admit it. Um, when you're on Survivor, if you ever get on the show, partner with a consistent person. Even if they're a consistent liar, you know what you're getting because they are consistent. It is the inconsistent people in that game that will mess up your entire game. In my day job, I get to hire a lot of people and so on. And so when I hire people, that's one of the things I'm looking for in, in employees is, is are they consistent? When I promote people, Ruth runs my agency. The reason she made it to that level is because she is consistent as I'll get out. We have customers yell at us and are mean and nasty all the time. She can get off one call and be just as sweet on that very next call. That's who she is, and that's why she leads my agency. On the alternative of that, I had a guy, he was an amazing salesperson, one of the best we ever had in the agency seven or eight years ago. Fantastic salesperson, but his attitude was so inconsistent that we let him go because it disrupted the morale of the team. His production didn't offset his inconsistency. There's a quote. I don't know who said it. They just said, the only thing consistent in this world is inconsistency. This is true, right? The only thing consistent in this world is inconsistency. I mean, rocks are fairly consistent. Dead people are fairly consistent, but we're alive. And part of being alive is living in inconsistency. So let's acknowledge that first of all. But is there value in being consistent? Is there value in being a consistent parent with our kids? Is there value in being consistent in how you make choices? Is there value in being consistent in your mood? Is there value being consistent when you're on a diet? Is there value being consistent in our spiritual walk and in our trust of God? The Bible says so, Ephesians 4.14, it says, Then we will no longer be like immature children. We won't be tossed and blown by every wave, and wind will be consistent. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always work, not sometimes, always work enthusiastically for the Lord. If we look at Genesis to Revelation, the tone and temper of Scripture points to us being steadfast, points to consistency, points to not being swayed back and forth by every circumstance and every mood change. Chapter 13, we did last week. Saul has been inconsistent in leading his people, and because of his inconsistency, his people have begun to abandon him. His military now is in a very sorry state. He's got 600 people left in the military and because of his inconsistency and his trust of God, he has now lost God's blessing for his kingship. 
And so we're going to go verse by verse through chapter 14. I'll skip some because it's a long chapter, but if you've got your Bible, pull it out. It's the New Living Translation. Otherwise, you can just follow along on the screen. And it says in verse 1, One day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on, let's go over to where the Philistines, these are the bad guys in the story, Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. Why didn't Jonathan tell dad? Because Saul has been so inconsistent that he does not trust him. He's worried that if he tells his dad, his dad will screw up the plan. Verse 2 says, Meanwhile, Saul, while Jonathan's going off to military battle, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. So in chapter 13, Saul had done something wrong. Um, And here in chapter 14, his response to that then is doing nothing at all. That's the point that the author wants us to know right now, that Jonathan is taking action while Saul is sitting there under the pomegranate tree, resting and doing nothing. And so there's inconsistency right there that we see with Saul. In the prior chapter, the man was too impulsive to wait for Samuel to arrive, but now he's too paralyzed to engage. There's inconsistency. Verse 3, I won't read it to you because I will butcher all of those names and embarrass myself, but these names, anytime you see a lot of names like this, they're not there for no reason. This was written three or 400 years after the events. So these names are here for a reason, and the reason why these names are here is these are very weak, bad people. And Saul, as a weak leader, has surrounded himself by weak people. You've heard the saying, misery loves company, or maybe you prefer the saying, birds of a feather flock together. So that's generally how we operate. If you're a complainer, then you build an inner circle with a bunch of complainers. You get together, what do you do? You sit around and complain. If you're a critical person, you build a lot of critical people around you. You get together, everyone sits around and complains. Or if you're a fearful person, maybe you surround yourself with people who feed those fears as you get together and you catastrophize who you bring into your inner circle. Tremendous impact on your mental and your spiritual consistency. Verse 6, we're going to transition now back to Jonathan. He says, let's go across, he's talking to his armor bearer, let's go across to the outposts of those pagans. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Perhaps, I like that word, maybe, possibly. Esther, if we look at her story, what does her dad say? He says, maybe, perhaps you were born for such a time as this. Shadrach, Meshach, all those guys, they're about to be thrown into the furs and say, God will help us out. Perhaps he won't, but we still trust God. Peter, Paul, they say a lot of perhaps, a lot of maybes. Jesus even says, Lord God, all things are possible with you, but not my will, but yours be done. That's a perhaps. It's okay as Christians to say perhaps. It's okay to say maybe when we speak of God's plans. They're very good words to include in your theology. So Jonathan says, perhaps, maybe, the Lord will help us. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He will win a battle whether he has many warriors or a few. And so Jonathan says, maybe this is God's plan. Maybe it's not. But here's what I know with certainty. Nothing can stop God from his eternal purpose. Verse 8 says, we will cross over and let them see us. So this is the big plan. 
If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we'll stop and not go to them. Verse 10, but if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up to them. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. I thought about that this week. I have a lot of Christian friends that are constantly looking for that big sign, for God to display a sign and let me know what I'm supposed to do. Is that what we should do as Christians? Should we be constantly going through life, as Jonathan does here, looking for a sign that tells us yes or no or what we should do? So, so maybe it's, God, if the, the lottery hits $500 billion, that'll be a sign tonight that you want me to buy a ticket. If that's your thing, it's like $680 billion right now, so I guess, you know, go buy a ticket. Or, God, God, give me a sign. If, if the guy brings me flowers on the first date, that'll be a sign that's who you want me to marry. Some people think that way. But I will tell you that signs do exist. That's a bad idea to operate in that way, by the way. But signs do exist, and they ought to point us right back to God's Word when we are looking for signs. And so if you come across somebody in need, somebody struggling, maybe that's a sign God wants you to help them. Or maybe if you are looking for someone to marry, look for signs like humility sacrificial love and gentleness and consistency, or look for warning signs like volatility and selfishness and dishonesty. Verse 11, when the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Remember last week, they were in their caves and their holes, so they're taunting them here. It says, then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. That's the sign Jonathan was looking for. And so verse 13 says, So they climbed up using both hands and feet, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed those who came behind them. And it goes on to tell us there were 20 men in total killed. They were spread out across the half acre. This is a pretty brutal uh, war battle and scene that's happening here. Verse 15 says, Suddenly... Panic broke out in the Philistine army. So now it's spread. They've defeated these 20 people, cut them up, spread them over a half acre. It says panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field. And just then, an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. We generally think of earthquakes as something terrifying, right? Whether it's, you know, a real earthquake, whether it was like in that opening uh, kid video we saw every time Kenny spoke, it sounded like an earthquake on that video. <laughs> But maybe it's the earthquaking beneath our feet when we're going through life and it feels like that ground is beginning to break away. And that leads us sometimes when we feel that earthquake to begin to be inconsistent. We're like, we trusted God, but, but the ground is just breaking, it's shaking, and fear begins to creep in. And that fear then begins to affect our decisions. It begins to affect our attitudes and our demeanor, and it begins to cause us to change our behavior. But we can see here, that in earthquakes, God is often there in those victories. We see it throughout Scripture. Think of the death of Jesus. What happens? The earth shakes. We go to the New Testament, the Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas, they're there in jail, and they start singing, and what happens? An earthquake happens. And so if you hear nothing else tonight, maybe this is what you need to hear. If the ground is unsettled in your life right now, and it's shaking there beneath your feet, and there's earthquaking, hear this, the ground is shaking, and it's a sign that God is not an innocent bystander in your life, but he is engaged and he is working in whatever you're going through. And so this is a long chapter, and we give homework here as a church, so most of you, I think, have read this because everybody is telling me we are. It's great. We're reading church as a Bible. I'm not going to read it all to you, but let me just summarize verses 15 through 22. 
Saul's just still back there in the pomegranate tree. He's hanging out with his loser friends. He looks up, he sees the Philistines, and they're on the run. So he's like, hmm, what should we do? Remember, Saul's pretty inconsistent. And so now we're going to get a front row seat to his inconsistent leadership. First, he says, I got an idea. Let's take roll. That's what you should do. Who's missing? Uh, 596, 597. Where's 598? We're, miss, we're missing some people. We're missing a couple of people. Who's missing? And he realizes, oh, we're missing my son. Oh, okay. So then he starts talking to the priest, and he's like, hey, what do you guys think? I know I'm supposed to be the king and the leader, but he goes to the priest. What do you guys think? Then does something really dumb. He brings out the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if you caught that in the story, but if you remember back to the earlier chapters, they bring out the Ark, and all this disaster happens. Didn't turn out well last time, but he brings out the Ark thinking maybe that's a good idea, and then he scratches it all. He says, you know what? Never mind. Ready, shoot, aim. Let's just go. See, Saul is a person who is both indecisive and impulsive. Two terrible combinations, being indecisive and impulsive. Regardless, verse 23 says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. Saul couldn't save Israel. Jonathan was used by God to save Israel, but it was God, we're told, that saved Israel that day. And if this was a play, you're at the theater watching, that's the end of Act 1. Curtain would come down, it'd be intermission. If anybody needs to go to the bathroom, right now is the time. There's popcorn out in the lobby. We can have an intermission if you need to. But that's kind of the Act 1. That's the background story of now what's about to conspire in this next story. Saul, in the first story, he's there sitting on his hands. He's under the pomegranate tree. And it's Jonathan then who takes the initiative. Saul's resting, but it is Jonathan that shows bravery and courage and faith. It's Jonathan that makes this tremendous advance on the enemy that pushes forward the Israelite army. Saul should be celebrating his son. Should be just oozing with pride. That's my boy. Look what he's done. But he's not. We're going to learn soon he's jealous. He's bitter. He's embarrassed. This is his son. He's prideful. Wednesday night, I uh, took the youth to play a little laser tag. We took the night off from Bible studying on our Wednesday nights, and we said, let's go eat some pizza wings and play laser tag. Played the first game. It was pretty competitive. I didn't know who won, but we were all talking about it. The second time we go in, it was just our group, nobody else. And so we said, well, let's see who wins. And my daughter, Presley, was playing guitar. She won. Now, I should have celebrated the fact that my daughter won, and I came in second, by the way, and I made her know that. I should have celebrated that, but I didn't. Here's why. You know, running around playing laser tag, her, Anna, and myself get together, and we're like standing on the second floor. We're like, look, let's call a truce. Let's not shoot each other. We're just going to shoot the people running around at the bottom. And we do that for a little bit, and you're getting points as you're shooting the people. And then Presley turns to both of us and goes, pew, pew and shoots us both. That's why she won. I was not proud of her, but I got home, and I'm telling Karen this story, and Karen's like, I could not be more proud of you, Presley. (laughs) It's a sad thing when our pride doesn't allow us to rejoice in the success of others, but especially when our pride won't allow us to rejoice in the success of our kids, and that's where Saul is at. And so verse 24 begins to tell us this new story that's kind of happening simultaneously. It says, Now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day. 
It's a very purposeful transition that's happening here. Verse 23 said, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Verse 24 says, the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day. It's a transition here. And as readers, this author wants us to ask, well, why? Why were the men of Israel hard-pressed that day? Was it the enemy? Was it something else? But it says no, because Saul had placed them under an oath saying, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening, before I have full revenge on my enemies. So no one ate anything all that day. God brought victory to Israel. Saul brought exhaustion. Vows of abstinence, whether it's fasting or whatever, was relatively common for troops. So it's not necessarily so uncommon. Uh, They would prepare in advance for the battle to get them ready and kind of slim down and trim and be ready for the battle. But this is something different. This isn't preparing them for battle. It's actually exhausting them before they go into battle. And so here's, let me read it again. It says, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before the evening. And here's the telling part. Before I have full revenge on my enemies. A lot of I, me, and my happening in that sentence. Jonathan, in his story, pointed everything to God. It was God's plan. It was God's enemy. It was God's battle. Saul makes it all about him, my enemies, my revenge, my pride, and now my plan that hopefully gets us to win. But it's a terrible plan. Let's march into this difficult battle starving. Let's march into battle on an empty stomach. And oh, by the way, on the way to that battle, God brought us to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. That's the blessings in this land. You get to walk past all of that honey on the way to battle as you're starving and just see it laying there. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. That's how religion tends to work. Our Christian walk, it begins with a beautiful sentence. So the Lord saved us that day. And then religion comes along, and it tries to replace our victory with a bunch of exhaustion, with a bunch of man-made rules that we think are a better idea than the free grace and mercy of Christ, that blessing he's given us. Why do we do this? Because we want pride, and we want credit for the victory. Look what I did with this plan. Look what I accomplished with these rules. Aren't you impressed, God? Now you owe me that victory, God. Meanwhile, all it accomplishes is exhaustion. To us, if we're putting the rules upon ourselves, or it's a burden to others, if we're putting those rules upon them when Christ has already given us the victory. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father's command. And so he dipped the end of his stick into a piece of honeycomb, and he ate the honey. After he had eaten it, amazingly, he felt refreshed. Snow disobeying, dishonoring his parents here. He's hungry. He hadn't heard the rule. There's honey. He gets a sugar rush. He's like, dang, that feels good. Verse 28, but one of the men saw him and said, There's always one of these guys in every crowd, by the way. One of the men saw him and said, your father made the army take a strict oath that anyone who eats food today will be cursed. That's why everyone is weary and faint. Jonathan replies, my father has made trouble for us all. A command like that only hurts. See how refreshed I am now that I have eaten this little bit of honey. If the men had been allowed to eat freely, think how many more Philistines we could have killed. Saul is inconsistent. Saul 
in the last chapter failed to obey the command of God. And so now he just decides to make up his own commands and put them upon others. See this all the time in the church. Give you an example. The Bible speaks in no uncertain terms about generosity, about giving to the church, about giving for the building of God's kingdom. And yet it's always those same people who haven't followed that command of God, who haven't given a dime towards the kingdom of God in decades, the same people who like to dream up all kinds of other commands that they believe all those people over there should follow. Maybe it's the person who looks at porn every day, but the commands are about who can and cannot serve in the church. Or maybe it's, it's gossips, like there's no tomorrow breaking the commands of God, but creates rules about what words are and are not acceptable for others to speak. It's total hypocrisy. It's inconsistency at its finest. And all these rules, all these burdens that aren't from God they exhaust us. They drain us of energy, the energy that could have been used for the real fight and the real enemy. Verse 31 says, They chased and killed the Philistines all day, from Michmash to Ajalon, growing more and more faint. By that evening, Saul's curse had finally expired. These men are starving. They win this battle. They rushed for the battle plunder and butchered the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and the calves. And they eat. It's like a group of teenagers who haven't eaten in like, you know, 20 minutes. And they come upon a pizza and they just devour it because they're starving to death. And they eat everything else in sight too because they're so hungry and famished. People eat everything without thinking. The sheep, the goats, the cattle, the calves. But we're told they ate them without draining the blood. Saul's command was a man-made law. Something he made up. But the draining of the blood before eating was a God-given law. And I won't bore you with all the details, but if you want to go check it out, it's Leviticus 17. Animal blood was to atone for human sin, which made it sacred. It symbolized life. Therefore, God says it's not to be consumed. And if you wonder why we don't follow that now, the New Testament, Jesus comes. He's the sacrifice that atoned for all sin. And we did away with those ceremonial laws. And so here we have a group of people and they've been working so hard to keep this man-made law. They've suffered because of it. They lack energy become of it. They become weakened because of it. And yes, sin is sin, but here's what I see. It's obedience to the man-made command that causes them to then break the divine command. Let me explain to you what I mean if that doesn't track with you. Uh, I've been trying to eat cleaner for the last two weeks. COVID made me make some very bad choices about eating. And so I'm trying to clean up my eating habits and learn new habits and make better choices. Tuesday of this week, I didn't eat all day. I just didn't get around to it. I didn't have time. I knew I had to take Emory to soccer that night. I had not eaten since the night before. I pick up Emory from school, and I'm like, what do you want to eat? Let's find something healthy. And she's like, how about Hibachi Express? That is not clean eating. That is a terrible choice. Furthermore, not only is it unhealthy, it's beef jerky masquerading as steak. It was so not good, but I was hungry, and guess what? I devoured it. Had I not been hungry, I certainly would not have eaten that meal. Church, it's not uncommon for a church to come up with their own traditions, their own events, ways to be involved, ways to be engaged, and none of that's necessarily good or bad. It can be both good or bad. But when all of that st 
stuff and all of those rules and all of those traditions begin to press on us, begin to burden us, begin to exhaust us, they can then make us unprepared or have too little energy to do commands like simply loving our neighbor. Let's look at the purity culture. God's law is certainly that sex outside of marriage is sin. And so what we'll do is, well-intentioned, we begin adding a bunch of man-made rules onto our kids so that they don't have that temptation. So we'll say, you know, no dating before you're 25 or whatever. No kissing before you're married or sign this agreement or get a purity ring or cover up every part of your body. If you're a girl, guys, get a free pass on that for some reason. Even a guy wrote a book, I don't know if, and he's since recanted on it, but it was a book like, it's like, don't date ever is what it was, or something to that effect. It was just like, I kissed dating goodbye, thank you. It like totally escaped my mind. I'm like, oh, I want to mention that. It totally, I kissed dating goodbye. And he since recanted on that book and said I, that didn't help anybody. But we lay these rules and we lay these laws upon people. And we take the blessings of sex and sexuality and we add all this stuff on top that simply exhausts young people to a point where I wonder if we play a part in setting them up for failure. It's kind of like when I was a kid, we used to have these kids come to our house and their parents were really strict and so one group would come over and it was no TV at all. They weren't allowed to watch TV in their household. Guess what those kids only wanted to do when they came to my house? Watch TV. And another friend, no sodas, which is a pretty okay rule, but guess what he wanted? We had sodas in my house. Guess what he wanted to do? Two liters of Dr. Pepper for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Paul speaks to this in the book of Galatians. He calls religious rules and taboos. He says they're a weak and miserable principle, which drives us then back to slavery. Exhaustive rules creating overwhelming desire leading to sin. Verse 33, someone reported to Saul, look, the men are sinning against, that's that same guy again, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that still has blood in it. That is very wrong. Verse 34, he says, go out among the troops and tell them, Saul speaking, bring the cattle, sheep, and goats here to me. Kill them, drain the blood before you eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. It's not that Saul never made a right decision. He's, he's doing the right thing here. He's just so inconsistent in his decision-making. Here he shows grace to the people. Here he is obeying the command of God. He's trying to honor God. And so again, a reminder, Saul is neither new, fully good or fully bad. He's complicated. Verse 36, then Saul said, let's chase the Philistines all night and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. But the priest said, let's ask God first. Earlier this month, Karen and I met with a potential uh, pastor candidate for the church. We are looking to bring on a full-time pastor here eventually. And we had this meeting with him and his wife, and it's a great lunch. And, or maybe it's his wife and her husband. I'll tell you more about that later. But it was a great lunch. And after lunch, we came over here, and we're just having a great conversation, and we're getting to know them. And, you know, it's coming to the end of that time. We're like, all right, it's, it was nice to meet you guys. And I'm saying goodbye. And Karen just kind of pipes up. Uh, I feel like we ought to pray before they leave. And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, of course. That's, that's what I was thinking. I was going to do that too. It's what Saul kind of does here. Our first instinct, though, should always be to inquire of the Lord. That will help with our indecisive and inconsistency. Verse 37, so Saul prays. He says, should we go after the Philistines? Will you help us defeat them? 
It's like he's shaking his magic eight ball and asking for maybe yes or no. But it says, but God made no reply that day. Verse 38, then Saul said to the leaders, something's wrong. I want all my army commanders to come here. We must find out what sin was committed today. And again, in, in this playing out, you can kind of feel that inconsistency. He's kind of all over the place. He's like, hey, guys, let's go get those dirty Philistines. And then the priest said, let's pray. And so he's like, yeah, 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 we should pray. Dear God, should we go kill those dirty Philistines? And then he's like, oh, hey, God, hello, hello. Why are you answering me? It's been a whole day. I want an answer right now. And then he's like, who sinned? Whose fault was it? Because we know it's not my fault. It must be somebody else's fault. Verse 39, he says, I vow by the name of the Lord who rescued Israel that the sinner will surely die. Then he adds this, even if it is my own son, Jonathan, but no one would tell him what the trouble was. Why does he mention Jonathan? I mean, doesn't that seem strange to anybody else? I think he already knows who broke the rule. There's a lot of snitches and tattletales in this group of 600 men. We found that out already. I think Saul already knows, and that's why he plants that, even if it's Jonathan. It's his chance to get his punk son and get rid of him who made him look bad. And so verse 40, Saul says, Jonathan and I will stand over here, and all of you stand over there. And the people respond, and I just love this, whatever you think is best. There's sarcasm. I know there's sarcasm in that. They have no respect left for Saul, and we're learning that as this story goes along. They're already hiding stuff. They knew the answer, but they didn't tell Saul. They're giving pat answers. Are you the boss, man? Whatever you say. And that's where inconsistency leads. The people following us just give us pat answers. They hide stuff. They have no respect. Verse 41, then Saul prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, please show us who is guilty and who is innocent. Then they cast sacred lots. And again, if you've never read the Old Testament, some stuff in there that's sometimes hard to follow. And even on this, we don't get a lot of details and we can look back at other stories. But let me just kind of help you understand what's happening in this scene. They divide up essentially into two groups. You've got all the soldiers over here. And over here, you've got Saul and Jonathan. And so they have these two stones. And if you've read the story, it's called the Urim and the Thummim. And basically, it's like a yes or no. They're different colors. Again, like Survivor, and you put a rock in your hand, and you open it, and you show what color it is. And so it's this way of deciding. If they have this rock, they're guilty. If they have this rock, they're guilty. It's a yes or no. And by the way, it's kind of important to me because I grew up as a Mormon. And if you read any of their history, Joseph Smith, that's how he claimed to translate those magic golden plates that he found, letter by letter. Is it A, is it B? He would go letter by letter, and that's apparently how he translated the Book of Mormon. So anyway, a tie-in there. If you didn't know that, maybe that'll fill in on Trivial Pursuit for you. So here they've got this, this thing happening. They got them separated. They got the Urim and the Thummim, and Jonathan and Saul were chosen as the guilty ones, and the people were declared innocent. And then Saul said, now cast lots again. Let's do this thing over again. Now I'm going to stand over here. We're going to put Jonathan over there. We're going to hold the rocks in our hands. Then we're going to open them. They opened their hands, and Jonathan was shown, it says, to be the guilty one. And Saul says, tell me, what have you done? Do y'all remember that phrase from last week, chapter 13, Samuel sews up, and Saul, what have you done? Saul remembered that statement. He's, Jonathan says, I tasted a little honey. There's only a little bit on the end of my stick. Does that deserve death? And again, <laughs> The sarcasm is just bleeding out of this. He's like, yeah, Dad, I, I did something really bad. 
I got us this great victory that, that you wouldn't or couldn't do because you're just resting up under that pomegranate tree. When I got the victory, I gave all the glory to God, and yeah, on the way I had a little bit of honey. It's definitely worth condemning me to death. Verse 44, yes, Jonathan, Saul said, you must die. May God strike me and even kill me if you do not die for this. But the people broke in and said to Saul, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel, should he die? Far from it. And so the people rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. And we don't know how they rescued him, and I wish I knew more of that story. It just says the people rescued him, and he was not put to death. So that's the absurdity of this situation. It's, it's revealed in the fact that the people now finally speak out against this king that they had asked for. They intervene to save Jonathan. It's this ineffective and effective end of Saul's kingship. They say, our king that we've been given is a fool, and they give him a vote of no confidence. That's what inconsistency does if you're a leader. Whether you're leading an office at work, or whether you're leading your kids, or whether you're leading people in your circle of influence, or whether you're coaching and leading a soccer team, inconsistency tends to give us a vote of no confidence from those who are following us, and we've been given the blessing to lead. Verse 47, now when Saul had secured his grasp on Israel's throne, he fought against his enemies in every direction, and wherever he turned, he was victorious. He performed great deeds, saving Israel from all those who had plundered them. Notice it said Saul, not Jonathan. And you read that at the end of this, and you're like, what? We've been reading this terrible tragedy about Saul and all the bad decisions he'd made and all the dumb stuff he did and how he tried to kill his own son. And then the story ends with all the great things that Saul has done, and they lived happily ever after. What we should see here is Saul did have wins. He had successes. He did some good deeds. He did some good stuff. He had military success, but personally and privately, he was a failure. That's that inconsistency. And it's also a reminder to us that it's perfectly possible to succeed in the public forum and enjoy all the accolades that come with it, but yet fail in the battleground of one's own heart. You have an amazing career. You're uber successful while being a terrible parent or a terrible spouse at home. You're a gifted speaker from the pulpit, but a gifted verbal abuser behind closed doors. You have a willingness to give everything to the battles that don't matter and a quitter when it comes to the battles that truly matter. Inconsistency. It's Saul's middle name. And we can read this story and just be like, what a loser. I mean, this guy's trying to kill his own son. He's making terrible choices. What a deadbeat. That's not the purpose of this story, to look at Saul and just to beat him up and to criticize him. When we read Scripture, especially the Old Testament, we're to understand everything was written, as Paul says in Romans 15, so that through endurance and encouragement, we might have hope. It's the purpose from front to back of Scripture. But where do we find the hope in the tragic, sad picture of Saul collapsing? And by the way, we're going to read some more stories in future weeks, and it gets worse, and he goes downhill even further. This is just the beginning. And so maybe the point of this story is, don't be a Saul, be a Jonathan. I taught this 10, 12 years ago now, one of the first classes I ever taught at my former church. And I taught this story, and that's how I taught it. Don't be a Saul, 
Be a Jonathan. Look at all the great things Jonathan did. Look how he leads. Be a Jonathan. And there's some, there's some validity in that, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story, and the point of the Old Testament, the point of most of Scripture is to see a reflection of our lives, to see a reflection of our brokenness. And so when we're tempted to judge Saul for his lack of faith, we should look in the mirror and see our lack of faith and trust in God. When we see his inconsistency, we see his impatience, we should say, yeah, I'm a whole lot like that. And then to wonder, what kind of hope could there be for a screwed up person like this to look back at ourselves and say, what kind of hope could there be for a screwed up person like me? As frustrating as scripture can be, it's written the way it is to move us from here to, to move us to there, to move us from hopelessness to move us to hope, to lead us down the path to the victory we're giving at the battle of the cross, where we got a king who is everything that Saul failed to be as a king, a king who is consistent in every way. So consistent that he never, ever went back on his promise for the consequences of sin. And that promise was it led to death. Yet so consistent in his love of his people that he poured out those consequences onto his son so that the Lord could save Brian that day. The more we trust that king, the consistently good king, the king who is consistently by her side, the more steadfast, the more consistent our hearts will become. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your consistency. God, we thank you that you are steadfast. God, we ask tonight that we just look and reflect upon our lives, about our inconsistency, about the decisions and the choices we make, how we're all over the map. God, I ask that we lean into you and begin to change that consistency to lower the peaks and the valleys. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for grace that picks us up and carries us through. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand? Hey, thank you for being here tonight. I got a little homework for you for next week. And, and let you in on a secret, those of you who are here tonight. First of all, read 1 Samuel chapter... <laughs> Your mouth is getting a little dry. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Before you read that, if you haven't read it already, I'm going to tell you, it is my least favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And there are some ugly chapters in the Bible, so that's saying something. First Samuel chapter 15, my least favorite in all of Scripture. I've never taught it. It's going to be a challenge. So just for showing up next week to this challenging sermon and this challenging text, there's going to be a free gift just for showing up. It's going to blow your mind, I promise you. <laughs> God bless. Love you all. See you next week.